Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is Juneteenth? What does this day teach us about the history of our country? And what is important for us to know about the significance of this date? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. June 19th marks an important milestone in our country's history. It's known as Juneteenth, and it celebrates the effective end to slavery in the United States and is considered to be the longest-running African-American holiday. On June 19th, 1865. Union soldiers led by General Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas, and by federal order ensured the end of slavery in the state. Something important to note here, Juneteenth occurs a whole two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation by Abraham Lincoln in January of 1863. So to learn more about this date and the history of these events, I'm joined by Professor Herbert G. Ruffin. Professor Ruffin is the Department Chair of African American Studies at Syracuse University and is the author of a number of titles, including his most recent work, Freedom's Racial Frontier, African Americans in the 20th Century West. Professor, thank you so much for joining. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing well. We are on a Zoom call, and I see that you have about a million books behind you, and you've written a few as well. So are you staying busy over there? Um, All these interviews are keeping me busy these days, trying to wrap up, you know, a busy academic year, year, a couple of weeks remaining. Yeah, it's been very busy. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to come on this podcast because this is such an important holiday. So let's Mm -hmm. just get right into it. For those who don't know, what is Juneteenth? Juneteenth is the celebration and recognition, acknowledgement of African-Americans' emancipation. It goes back to, um, of course, June 19th, 1865, um, in which... African-Americans were emancipated east of Texas several months prior in April. And it took some time to get out to Texas, which at the time, for all intended purposes, I hate the word frontier, but it was a frontier or the last, the final frontier or the furthest out that the Confederacy had gone. Um, and this was uncovered inside Galveston area, although I would make the argument also that it expanded all the way out to like Austin, but the call was out in Galveston, Texas. Right. So we know General Granger emancipated Texas slaves on that date in 1865. Can you tell me a little bit about how Juneteenth became the established celebration it is today? What did those early celebrations look like? The following year, it was celebrated either as Juneteenth, depending on what community you were in, or as Emancipation Day. 
by African-Americans within Texas, um, in which you would hear the Emancipation Proclamation being um, um, addressed. You would hear um, all kind of other people talking about, you know, how far what they have gone through and, you know, trying to project, you know, some of the better parts of that past, the foundations in into a much more um, positive future for themselves, especially as first class citizens or the attempt to become first class citizen. Um, you would have, you know, some of the some of what would make up the soul food diet today, you know, a lot of that celebration as well, you know, think about your Texas barbecues and all of that other stuff people would get themselves involved, engaged in. Um, people would play many different type of games also during this time period, you know, and this would just continue all the way up every year. This would be sort of like our independence day, as opposed to the 4th of July, this 4th of July, they would celebrate, but this would actually be, African-Americans, um, arguably their first Independence Day. And that would go all the way up as they would extend from, um, many would extend from um, Texas and go into other parts, in particular the South in this early time period. Going into the 20th century, what you would have throughout the South are various different type of Juneteenths being celebrated, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And then this would continue on going up um, eventually as you had great migrations to the urban north and to the urban west, you would have this expanded out into those areas as well. And by um, 1980, um, Texas would recognize and legalize, was the first state to legalize Juneteenth as a um, statewide holiday. It seems to be widely thought that the end of slavery comes in 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation from Abraham Lincoln. However, we know that by looking at all of the people who were enslaved in Texas until June of 1865, that the Emancipation Proclamation really only served those near Union lines. So can you just speak to the Emancipation Proclamation and why it's not really the mark of the end of slavery? Um, Emancipation Proclamation, um, close to union li lines, you are correct. And also keep this in mind, Emancipation Proclamation is one of the most ingenious political military-based policies um, that have ever been constructed within the United States. Um, essentially, what it allows is for this idea as the North is having massive issues dealing with the South. They have the technological advantage. However, the South have the passion and drive to keep slavery, you know, to, to maintain that, to preserve it. And it's just going on and on and on. The North thought that they can run them, run them over very, very quick. And Lincoln is directing this in a particular type of manner. President Abraham Lincoln directing this in a manner in which this is centrally not about slavery. Um, when that Emancipation Proclamation comes out, that begins to start to turn the tide. Um, however, with there being 4 million uh, persons of African descent within the United States at that time, it only effectively addresses those who are inside the Deep South. It doesn't really address people you know, the, the standing of folks with inside the border states in which there were four. 
And that's critical. That's crucial to understand. You know, there was 750,000 people enslaved within those spaces. So they're not really necessarily being addressed. And when you talk about these union lines, these would have been some of the closest places as to where you would have had that um, that abolition take place. So really what you're hoping is for soldiers, union soldiers, as they come down and you hear those drums playing and whatnot, you know, you hear the battle happening, people begin to start to take their freedom at that time. And the Emancipation Proclamation, keep in mind, is also not a federal law that states anything about a total into enslavement. Actually, that comes about in January 1865 with the 13th Amendment. But keep in mind, the 13th Amendment, in the 13th Amendment, it has a loophole which is still with us today, which states that anybody who is imprisoned technically is a person who is a slave by another name. That's important to note. People who Mm. are part of the prison industrial complex are still technically enslaved. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's one thing going on to Juneteenth by that time, by the time you have June 19th come around, um, you already have that, that 13th amendment that is passed and you have what is um, described during this time period as um, a possibility for freedom through economic empowerment, through maybe land ownership, items along the type of line, items that my father's family, who are out of Texas, in which we have about 700 members out inside the central part of Texas, would have basically jumped at, you know. And they were one of the few fortunate people not to get caught up into the trap of um, debt peonage, you know, vis-a-vis sharecropping, you know, Mm -hmm. get caught up inside that type of, you know, carousel. Staying with those political motives and Lincoln's addressing of the South and slavery and the Confederacy, from your perspective, Professor, what needed to happen for the freedom of these enslaved persons to come about? In order for me to answer that, I'm going to crush together two different type of movements that I think people are kind of seeing today. But I don't think we necessarily see the transformation and anti-racism part in it yet. You know, there's a lot of performance that's taking place. Back in this time period, folks understood, you know, look, these are the scars on my back. You know, um, this is what has, you know, we have toiled in a particular type of manner. And what people are asking for were not just rights, like people are asking for now. What they were asking for also were, they was asking for equality, but they're also asking for um, various different types of empowerments, whether they be in housing, um, the ownership of land, which is so important in that education, em- employment, um, in terms of police treatment and how the state also will treat you as well. And just going down the line in that type of fashion, they combine all this stuff all in one. First time that it was heard was actually in 1864 inside inside, um, Louisiana, as you had for the first time generals, U.S. generals meeting up with these formerly enslaved persons, asking them basically what does freedom necessarily mean to you. Up here in Syracuse, you had something very similar, not necessarily generals coming together 
with those formerly enslaved, but you had people who were part of a very strong abolition movement. And here inside Syracuse, you had what was hatched um, called the National Equal Rights League, which started up in 1864. It went all the way until 1920 and is a predecessor to the national to to the NAACP. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. This is Jimmy Fallon inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. So uh, when this happened, realistically, what did freedom look like for newly freed slaves in Texas and across the U.S.? Because I was reading (laughs) that some plantation owners (laughs) withheld the news of slaves' freedom from their slaves after the harvest season was over. And of course, General Granger's statement noted that slaves were, quote, advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. Can you just expand on what happened to those people following June 19th, 1865? Oh, boy, that that is a real great question. And the only thing that I could say concerning absolute freedom for these people is something that is existential. It is connected into their own being and what they have on their backs and on their bodies in which, you know, you have, you know, um, uh, the great promises that came out of that. And I start off once again, first and foremost, with the whole issue of land. Um, That was not coming their way. When you talk about education, education was a big equalizer. And going by the time you have 1900 come around, 75 percent of those of African descent were educated and they can read. They were literate, you know, going forward in that type of way. But still, you know, there are always these mixed results, especially when you have these separate but equal, unequal type, separate but unequal type um, conditions that had existed even before you had those conditions exist in a Jim Crow type of world post-1868, post-Placey versus Ferguson going into the 1960s. That had always existed, but it existed through what people would describe as the black codes. You know, so, I mean, it was a time period of just continual struggle. It was a time period in which you're free, but now you're free instead of being linked with a slave master um, who perhaps in which there are these protections as enslaved labor. You know, now you're free to basically just perish inside public. You know, again, housing, education, employment, police treatment, um, health, things along those type of lines are very, very important to the African-American community. And when you're talking about a control of body, we're talking about one, controlling your body, but two, also how important family becomes in this Mm -hmm. instance, in which if you could control anything and what's different between this and a period before is the fact that you have a family is the fact that, you know, um, those sharecropping contracts, even though they were um, very, very unfair, you know, you're no longer doing what is considered to be gang labor, for example, you know, Um, you are being confronted by 
former slave patrols. Now they have become police officers, you know, that type of thing. And if they catch you as a vagrant, just kind of hanging out or whatever, you can go on to the chain gang, that type of thing. But you also had people who um, could marry, you know, people who um, had a little bit more greater control about um, how they can do things based on time in most areas outside of, say, for example, a place like South Carolina, because in South Carolina, at least on the coastline, you can at least task your labor, even during enslavement periods, you know, inside the rice country and whatnot. So um, it was a mixed type of ordeal, but it was a, the type of ordeal that African-Americans, um, what you're seeing today, it's... It's it. The struggle is, to me, the way I see it, is not necessarily all that much different when you look at the final end results as opposed to what they were going through back in that time period. Right. You know, just different technologies and so, different realities. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when you talk about those conditions, Juneteenth is an exciting time, but I'm sure it was just probably difficult to celebrate. But were people still celebrating early on? And yeah. how has that celebration evolved throughout time? Oh, yeah. They, they, they've been celebrating early on and you would get your churches and your mutual aid societies and whatever organizations involved, you know, you would get your whole community for your first line of community was family and a lot in, and in terms of the difficulty um, for your audience, I don't know if it was as difficult as stated largely because even during enslavement, there has always been some sort of regiment built in going back into the antebellum period, working five days a week, full, full, time in that period sun up sundown saturdays work half day sunday is the day where you eat the gospel bird and you take time off you mm -hmm. know so i mean that was sort of the regimen and in this early time period juneteenth would go four days you know so they built a lot of this stuff in a lot of what you would find with soul food part of the soul food diet was built in in this period, although with the main difference is that you don't eat that gospel bird or fried chicken seven days a week, you know, perhaps you have a little bit more of a plant-based diet throughout, you know, as you work through, you know, throughout. So, I mean, um, it was not as difficult as stated in for a lot of these families also, this would build into family reunions as well. Like in my family, um, the Ball family out in um, Central Texas. When I'm out there, there's so many of them and so few ruffins out there that um, many people call me a ball, basically. Um, that type of thing out around Seguin area. And uh, we have had a family reunion going all the way back to the 1930s. Wow. You know, so we're coming up on almost 100 years. And this initially was for um, Bob Ball to, you know, see all of, you know, have all his grandkids and kids and whatnot <laughs> around. And, you know, this would have been a big thing to do out, out and about inside this space. But then ultimately for the pre preceding generations that you had great migrations take place out to other parts of the world. And as they're moving out, they're taking Juneteenth with them. Um, what would, what would develop um, 
out of these family reunions, this was a space also to discover who was inside your family, who you were related to. Um, this is important for marriage reasons, you know, because you don't want to be marrying first or second cousins or anything mm-hmm. like that, you know. So, I mean, this was one another way how they were able to track that type of thing as well. And so this would be very, very much closely connected with that Juneteenth because only in a couple of weeks from now, um, right after Ju- um, July the 4th, that's when we will have our family reunion. So you have Juneteenth, you have this, and then you have that. And the neat thing about Juneteenth is that Juneteenth has not been appropriated by the mainstream in a way that the the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday has been appropriated, where in the same area, they, in San Antonio, they have the largest Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. parade, but it usually is a time period for um, for employees of companies like AT and T to take, you know, to perhaps partake in it, it's a right. time for AT and T to say, you know, do this performance performance based protest to say that they're non racial, not anti racial, but non racial, and all about diversity, inclusion, equity, and all that other stuff. And once the two hours is done then basically people can take the rest of the day off. Mm. You know, Juneteenth ain't that way. Absolutely. I mean, these are some really thought-provoking points there, Professor. And as we begin to just wrap things up here, for our audience, what do you feel is the most important for people to remember about Juneteenth? The biggest thing for me about Juneteenth, and I I hate to do this, but I'm going to juxtapose it a little bit from uh, what I think has happened with the King holiday. And also, you know, that whole thing with Black History Month, you know, which a lot of people have talked about is a little bit too too short, and you have all kind of appropriations taking place um, with various institutions doing performance politics. Um, in the King holiday, I understand where people are coming from. It needs to be recognized, acknowledged. Um, but it's too easy in a post-civil rights era for people to look at the icon and look at the, you know, as leader and celebrate in that type of fashion, as opposed to deal with the collective, which is what actually that freedom struggle was about. And that's what the freedom struggle has always been about. Without the collective, I wouldn't be here talking to you, you know. Um, in a sense of Juneteenth, Juneteenth has been more about the collective, you know, up to this point. It has not been appropriated. It still has this feel of empowerment and connection with um, also if you want to throw out the whole issue of rights. But I don't think folks are so hung up on the whole civil rights citizenship discussion as they are with the other it's more about that empowerment where we are. It's more of a Sankofa type of feel in which this is where we have come from and thinking more about, you know, the positive sides of things of how we have been able to not just survive, but how we have been able to thrive, you know, set a path going forward and thriving. This is very, very important, you know, and, um, I did not bring this up about my father's family, but they have this 
motto um, for our family reunions every year. They call it all for one. And I think that is probably the most important thing to take away with this is that there's more of this all for one type of feel. And it's so Texas. It's so rural Texas where you got these people. They may be in the city, but if they're from Texas and they interesting enough have connections to the land on the outside, you're talking about somebody who has a potential base of power if they own their family owns a good swath in which I could sit right here where I am in Syracuse, look around everywhere I'm looking and turn around within a certain part of Seguin, Texas, and all that land is basically mine. Wow. Professor, this has been so wonderful, and I really appreciate you coming on because this is such an important holiday, and it's important for listeners all around to really understand what happened on June 19th and why we continue to celebrate it. So thank you again for your time. Yes. Yes. Thank you for um, having me on board. All right. Enjoy it up there in Syracuse. All right, if you miss anything from class, these are my office hours, and here are some top takeaways from my conversation with Professor Herbert Ruffin on Juneteenth. Number one, Professor Ruffin says that Juneteenth has a strong lineage. He notes early celebrators of the holiday may have called Juneteenth Emancipation Day. Professor Ruffin said that freedmen would speak about their new freedom and their hopes for the future, enjoy some 1800s iterations of early Texas barbecue, and even play some games. Number two, Professor Ruffin says that although Juneteenth finds its roots in Texas, these emancipatory celebrations traveled across the country with the Great Migration to urban centers throughout the 1900s, and this holiday expanded. Professor Ruffin says that by 1980, Texas was the first state to recognize Juneteenth as an official holiday. And number three, Professor Ruffin highlights the communal nature of Juneteenth. To him, the most important part of this holiday in our history is that it highlights the work that everyone did to ensure these freedoms. Professor Ruffin says that his family actually has their family reunion around the time of Juneteenth and says their reunion motto, quote, all for one, really encapsulates the spirit of this holiday. That's all for us today. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.